Coming up this evening on NTD Business. How will China's ongoing severe lockdowns affect the prices we're paying in America? The Shanghai port is clogged. On Tax Day, we talked to the president of Americans for Tax Reform about how to reduce taxes and inflation at the same time. Power companies want to spend billions on our nation's aging power grid. There may be fewer outages, but what will happen to our energy bills? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here, live from New York City. Troubles halfway across the world could be about to affect the prices you pay here in America. Get ready for the next supply chain shockwave. Virus lockdowns in Shanghai are creating massive cargo backlog. Shanghai is home to the biggest container port in the world. It's also a huge center for auto and electronic suppliers. But most plants and warehouses in the city are closed. 90% of trucks are sidelined. That means freight is piling up. Twice as many ships are waiting around compared to last year, according to a professor at NYU Shanghai. Supply chain risk company Everstream Analytics predicts this could quickly cause problems at U.S. auto plants because they won't be able to get parts from China. The slowdown could help American ports clear their own backlog, but some China observers say lockdowns could last until June or later, even into peak shipping season. Freight booking site Freighto says this could be the biggest disruption to logistics since the pandemic started. Today, Shanghai reported its first COVID death since the lockdown began. The city has been locked down for more than half a month now with over 300,000 reported cases. But strangely, no deaths attributed to the virus until now. Anthony's Don Ma has the story. Health officials say three people died from COVID on Sunday. They were between 89 and 91 years old. A number of outlets have pointed out how low the death count has been in Shanghai. For comparison, Hong Kong has reported thousands of deaths amid its recent virus outbreak. Shanghai has been battling a surge in Omicron cases. The city's lockdown is the most severe since the one in Wuhan. Locals are not allowed to leave their homes, even to buy groceries. Immunology and global health specialist Dr. Alejandro Diaz tells me lockdowns are not the right way to tackle Omicron. Lockdowns, they don't work as well as we thought. They don't work as well. But what I can tell you is that herd immunity and vaccination rate for those who believe in the vaccine is key. Locking down Shanghai is like trying to stamp out the common cold. Diaz explains because that is what Omicron is comparable to. Omicron, it's really like very similar to common cold. You just stay at home for two or three days and then you go to work, you go to school, you go outside. City authorities are also sending infected residents to government-run quarantine facilities. If you're wondering what the living conditions are like at some of these facilities, they're not good. Construction hasn't even finished at some of them. People are sleeping on the ground. There are water leaks in the ceilings, and the facilities are packed with people. One Shanghai resident said that he actually got virus symptoms after being sent there. And keep in mind that the people at these places are mostly those who have the virus. As the Shanghai lockdown continues, Chinese netizens have started echoing the first line of the Chinese national anthem, which says, stand up 
those who refuse to be slaves. But now it seems Chinese censors are banning the first line of its national anthem online. Hashtags of the phrase are no longer searchable on Chinese social media platform Weibo. China wants to be a powerful country on the world stage, but economists have said that it can't achieve that goal if it keeps its economy locked down. Don Ma, NTD News. And China's latest GDP report is out. Today, the country reported a 4.8% growth in its first quarter of this year compared to the same period last year. Much of the growth was recorded in January and February. China's economic activity began slowing in March due to the lockdowns of China's largest city, Shanghai, the tech hub Shenzhen and other major industrial centers. Lockdowns halted production, grounded workers, snarled ports, it also forced hundreds of millions of consumers to stay at home. The economic slowdown is expected to worsen this month with even more regions placed under restrictions. With us live to discuss how China's economic problems could impact the rest of the world is Brian McCarthy, Chinese economy expert and chief strategist at MacroLens. Brian, what's at risk? Well, uh, I think we've spoken recently about the downside to Chinese growth. Um, the numbers we got the other night were a little better than anticipated on the headline GDP, but a real interesting dichotomy in the monthly data. So uh, fixed asset investment, 9.3% was quite strong. They've front-loaded a lot of infrastructure spending. So they're, they're doing a year's worth of spending in the first three or four months. So that money's gone out the door. Industrial production at 5%, about on target, a little better than expected. Despite the COVID lockdowns, the factories are still humming. So they have, you know, they're operating under what they call closed loops, literally people sleeping on sleeping bags and in tents on the factory floor. So the industrial production is still going. Retail sales, on the other hand, down three and a half percent year on year. So clearly the consumer is hurting uh, as a result of these lockdowns. And, and the sort of the, uh, the untold story of the Chinese data is small and medium-sized enterprises that don't really get captured very well by the statisticians are really getting hammered by these lockdowns. This was the case in 2020. They didn't get anywhere near the kind of compensation companies in the West got. So there's a real uh, damage being done to sort of the guts of the Chinese economy uh, with these small and medium-sized enterprises. What's the inflationary impact to Americans? I think that is easy to be overblown a little bit. So the, the Shanghai port, while it is the largest in the world, moves about 10% of Chinese exports. But seven of the 10 largest ports in the world are on the east coast of China. So, you know, it's probably throughput through Shanghai down 40 to 60%, but a lot of that is being rerouted to other ports. You're talking Chinese trade, you know, maybe a, a damage of a few percentage points. So I, I, I think it's, uh, it's a stretch to say this has global ramifications yet to the point that was made in, in the piece you just played. If this extends for another month, six weeks, it could be very damaging. But my sense is that Chinese leadership is already starting to try to find a way to back out of this policy. The U.S. is tightening monetary policy as we speak, albeit slowly, but China is being forced to loosen. What does that mean? 
Well, interestingly, we see some weakness in the euro because the ECB is tightening much more gradually than the Fed. We see extreme weakness in the yen because the BOJ has a divergent policy. China, to this point, has been reluctant to let the RMB go. But if they join those other central banks and loosen up the reins on the RMB, perhaps in response to yen weakness, uh, that could cause some global financial instability. Uh, but to this point, the Chinese policymakers seem not to want to open that Pandora's box. I think in the second half of this year, economic weakness and the need for policy e easing uh, will, will make that become a more viable policy option, uh, RMB weakness, that is. And quickly back to the data release today, Brian, do you trust the numbers that are coming out in what we'll call, what we would call an election year in America? China has this uh, big meeting Xi Jinping is taking very seriously. Um, uh, can the economy, can it endure these type of severe lockdowns? It's funny, nobody trusts the Chinese data, yet it's all we have, so we all watch it and we all talk about it. Um, you know, I, I, I think broadly the data says that, uh, you know, they're not going to make their 5.5% GDP target this year, but it's not a disaster yet because they've pumped out a lot of this money. I would say politically, my sense is that Xi Jinping is pretty safe. Um, I don't think he would have uh, attacked the housing market as he did last year, uh, attacked some of the Chinese tech firms as he did last year, if he didn't feel secure in his position. So I am not of the mind that any of this affects what's going to happen with the leadership non-transition this fall. Brian McCarthy, MacroLens, thank you. Talk soon. Thanks, Paul. Down on Wall Street today, markets were down. The Dow fell 40 points, one-tenth of a percent. S&P 500 lost one point, and the Nasdaq dropped 19 points, about one-tenth of a percent today. And for most Americans, Monday, April 18th is the deadline to file federal taxes. Easter Monday is not a federal holiday, so it's important to have your return postmark before midnight. The IRS is urging Americans to file their returns electronically because it is currently taking up to six months to process a paper return. Monday's deadline is not for everybody. Taxpayers who live in Maine or Massachusetts have until April 19th to file because their states celebrate Patriots Day. IRS has also extended the deadline until May 16th for victims of the Colorado wildfires as well as tornado victims in Illinois, Kentucky and Tennessee. This year's return will be a little more complicated than usual for those trying to meet the deadline. It's because of the need to factor in the child tax credit, third stimulus check and new rules about reporting income from cryptocurrency. And Grover Norquist is an American political activist and tax reduction advocate. He's the founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. It's an organization that opposes all tax increases. Norquist founded the group in 1985 at President Reagan's request. I asked him today if we reduce taxes further, is he willing to see a bigger federal deficit in the short run? Well, two things. I'd rather have spending restraint at the same time that you reduce taxes. But tax cuts very soon, um, almost immediately, gets you tremendous increase in investment, particularly the corporate income tax. That's money that instead of going to the government, went immediately into investment, uh, into investment in the economy. Two years after that tax bill was passed, the median income for a family of four increased by 6.8%. That is a bigger increase in the value of the middle income family that in all eight years of Obama, eight years of Obama, one year of the Republican tax cuts gave you 6.8. That's the growth you want. That's what you're aiming for. 
and reducing taxes and particularly marginal tax rates gets you that economic growth. Is cutting taxes not inflationary in the short run if the deficit does grow? It's really a question of how much you're spending, whether you're printing more money. Uh, Which and would be, right? Well, hopefully all you need to do is have some restraint on the long term, and people understand what's happening long term. Uh, you certainly didn't see inflation when we had the tax cuts uh, under Reagan. Inflation went down as the Reagan tax cuts came in, down to, you know, was it 10, 11, 12 percent under Jimmy Carter, went down to 2 or 3 percent under Reagan while he was cutting taxes, but not increasing the supply of the money. And under Trump, he was cutting taxes, but not increasing the supply of money. And so you had low inflation with tax cuts. So the left needs to under explain to us why they say tax cuts are inflationary when tax cuts have been in recent periods non-inflationary periods. The Kennedy tax cuts were not inflationary. The Johnson spending spree was inflationary. The spending spree from FDR was inflationary. The spending spree uh, now from uh, Biden is inflationary. That's what you have to watch out for. Back in Reagan time with the supply side revolution, is there anything beyond just tax cuts that can be done in this space because we have serious supply chain problems at the moment? And that's something where we need to work on the regulations. The Jones Act, for instance, was put in to favor one particular shipping company that went between Seattle, Washington, and Alaska. They didn't want any competitors. So they came up with a rule that has to be, the boats have to be made by, in America and be staffed by unionized American members, and that kept out competitors. Uh, they've made that national. It's a national law, it's a federal law. And it now makes life in Hawaii very expensive because all the shipping has to be done with ex more expensive ships. Uh, and Puerto Rico was getting gasoline and, and natural gas from Russia not from Texas because the Jones Act made it too difficult and expensive to move things from Texas to Puerto Rico, but less expensive to bring it from Moscow, uh, from, from Russia. So the Jones Act is one of those regulations that's very damaging to the supply chain, uh, and the unions in the port of uh, California and LA, Los Angeles, they've made it very difficult to, up it's one of the oldest ports in terms of the technology that things that speed up getting things on and off ships in other ports have been stopped in California, stopped in LA by the union, which wants to maximize the number of jobs, not get the job done. Over Norquist, Americans for Tax Reform. And transforming aging coal plants into mini nuclear reactors it hasn't been done successfully in America yet, but people are willing to bet it could work. Basically, utility companies and startups want to place small, modular nuclear reactors inside or around these old coal plants, which are about to retire anyway. Companies are looking for billions of dollars of government funding, and lawmakers are seriously considering making it happen. But it does seem to be a complete gamble. Even people who support doing it have conceded it isn't certain this would be cheaper or easier than building a real nuclear power plant. And to something a little more certain, utility companies want to upgrade our aging power grid. Currently, it's not always dependable, with some parts of America experiencing long outages, however, also experiencing high energy prices. Today's fake quarter has more.
Power companies want to upgrade the power grid. The aging power grid is currently suffering from dependability issues, such as long, large-scale power outages. Prices are going to go up. There's no two ways about that. Don Whaley is the president of Ohm Connect Energy. Whaley says the money it takes to improve the system will eventually be collected from U.S. consumers. This comes as U.S. energy prices are steadily rising. We're going to see this summer, certainly in Texas and in other areas that have high air conditioning load, we're going to see significant increases in the cost of electricity. DTE Energy, which is a Michigan-based utility company, wants to spend up to $35 billion to replace coal plants with renewables and battery storage. DTE CEO Jerry Norcia says, We have entered an historic period of transformation in the energy industry. Another company, Southern California Edison, wants to spend up to $30 billion to lower wildfire risk and prepare for greater electricity demand. It also wants to to build big batteries to store renewable energy. With wind and solar, the power is distributed all around. And so you've got, A, you've got to have more wires. You've got to have new technologies. Sterling Burnett is a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute. Burnett says renewable energies bring many additional challenges and that they're even more vulnerable to the weather and outages. The U.S. power grid is generally made up of three parts, the eastern grid, the western grid, and ERCOT, which covers Texas. Construction of the grid started in the early 1900s. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And consulting firm McKinsey has been accused of a serious conflict of interest over opioids. It worked for the U.S. government on opioid issues, while at the same time advising opioid manufacturers. Congressional report alleges McKinsey consultants provided services to the FDA on issues related to the opioid epidemic, but at the same time they advised drug makers, including on projects meant to persuade regulators about the safety of opioid products. The House Oversight Committee accused McKinsey of failing to disclose conflict of interest to the FDA, potentially violating contract requirements in federal law. McKinsey says it followed the law, but it did say it fell short of its own high standards. McKinsey said it stopped advising clients in opioid-related business three years ago. The company said it would continue cooperating with Congress on the probe. And there are thieves trying to steal your loot, literally. Cops in New York City are tracking several video game thieves. The men pose as customers via online marketplaces, hoping to meet up with the would-be sellers, only to rob them afterwards at the location. NYPD said one suspect, who has an Air Jordan tattoo on his neck and drives a dark blue Honda Accord, struck twice in one day, stealing a $1,000 graphics card from a victim in the Bronx, only hours later snagging a PlayStation from another victim in Queens. At least two other PlayStation thefts were reported in New York City earlier this month. New PlayStation goes for about $900. Besides social media, there's another type of scam that's exploding across America. It's called smishing. It's basically fake texts sent directly to your phone. You probably got them. Anthony's Phil Zoe has the story. Spam messages trying to scam you are growing across the U.S., whether it's phone calls, emails, or social media posts. But one type, called smishing, is getting even more popular. It involves a text message or phone number. They can get through to us very effectively because who doesn't look down at their phone when you get a text? Everybody does. I spoke to Scott Schober, who's the host of Cyber Coast to Coast, and What Keeps You Up at Night. Both are podcasts focusing on cybersecurity threats. Typically, when we get a text from maybe a colleague, it's somebody in our contacts, we trust them. 
and we tend to click on that link, and that's part of the problem. In March alone, the average American received over 40 spam text messages. If someone smissed you or they fished you via SMS, they're able to take over your phone without you actually clicking on the link or anything like that. So just viewing the text message by itself is enough to get you compromised. Katrin Evans is an ethical hacker or a good hacker who hunts down the bad hackers. He says smishing is popular because hackers are very successful with it. So if I'm a bad guy and I'm doing these things and I have one thing that's got a 20% success rate and I've got smishing and phishing that's got a 90% success rate, I'm definitely going to spend more time and effort beefing up the thing that gives me the highest amount of success. He says there's not much you can do now except keep your phone's security up to date. Schober says... Just delete it. Don't even click on the link. If it looks suspicious or you don't know who it's from, then don't click on it and simply just delete it, and then you'll be much safer. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Still to come, stay with us. Ukrainian farmers determined to feed their nation despite a war that's damaged infrastructure and caused a shortage of fertilizer. A Taco Bell fan favorite is soon returning after a two-year hiatus. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Planting season has arrived in Ukraine, even as Russia presses on with its invasion. And it's an uphill battle for farmers to provide food, not only for Ukrainians, but also for the rest of the world. Anthony's Andrew Thomas has more. Ukraine and Russia account for a third of global wheat and barley exports. In the northwestern Lviv region, farmers are being asked to plant in all of the available fields. Ivan Kilgan said they will produce 50 million tons of grain this season. We do not stop, because I think that after the battlefront is the planting campaign, which is the second front, the front for food security, I think we will win it. But the challenges keep growing, such as the shortage of fertilizer, with producers paralyzed by nearby fighting. Infrastructure has been snarled and damaged, meaning critical supplies like fuel are difficult to get and routes for export are almost impossible to reach. Unexploded ordnance in nearby fields makes matters even more difficult. The thunning sounds of efforts to safely dispose of the ordnance could be heard last week. Some fields have been mined or bombed. It's dangerous. We predict that there will be a reduction in production areas in the southern and central region of Ukraine. According to a survey we conducted last week, all farmers in the Lviv region are determined. Although resources have become more expensive and it will be tough to plant, they are determined not to reduce the areas where they plant, and some are even interested in expanding them. Concerned about hunger, Ukraine's government has limited exports of oats, millet, buckwheat, sugar, salt, rye and meat. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And Taco Bell fans are drooling over the return of Mexican pizza. It's after a two-year hiatus. 
The fast food chain confirmed today that Mexican pizza will reappear on menus next month. Taco Bell introduced the item in 1985. It was originally called Pizzazz Pizza, but the restaurant stopped serving it back in 2020 to cut costs. The move, though, outraged some customers, with hundreds of thousands of people signing a petition demanding that Taco Bell bring it back. Vegetarians are especially happy about the return of Mexican pizza. It's one of the few fast food meals available to them. Mexican pizza is expected to relaunch on May 19th. And a Spanish food tech startup is 3D printing whole cuts of steak based from plant-based products. It's trying to achieve the most realistic meat imitation possible. Introduce Andrew Thomas has more. This 3D printer is producing a whole cut veggie steak. Spanish startup Nova Meat targets heavy meat eaters who can't compromise on the taste and texture of real meat. We aren't after vegetarian or vegan consumers. They existed long before these products first appeared. We want our consumers to reduce the amount of meat they eat, but without having to renounce the experience of eating meat. The 3D printed steak has to fool all senses. Taste, texture, appearance, and even smell, and requires the right amount and proportion of ingredients including peas, beetroot juice, and seaweed that are made into fibers that imitate muscle tissue. We started with the most difficult one, element of the 3D printed steak, which is the texture. It's very difficult to achieve a steak-like parameter. It's a very difficult parameter to achieve in the food industry. We started with that and we got it right. We are very proud. Then we have the parameters of taste and mouthfeel. In regards to these two, we have improved a lot lately, so people are telling us we are doing well in texture, taste, and mouthfeel. The company is still conducting a series of tastings and cooking schools to gather some feedback. At the Culinary Institute of Barcelona, Nuria Zarco appreciated the product's texture. I was surprised. I wasn't expecting that, given how they make the steaks and the ingredients they use. The texture is very well achieved. The taste, too. There were different tastes to try. In general, they were all very tasty. Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are two major names in the global fake meat arena. But there are dozens of other brands competing in the market, including some which also use 3D printers. Nova Meat plans to have its steaks available at selected restaurants in Spain by the end of 2022. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Appetizing. More people are heading back to the movie theaters, but probably not as much as this man in Florida. He spent nearly $3,500 on tickets to see Spider-Man No Way Home nearly 300 times. In the process, Romero Alanis broke the world record for most cinema productions attended of the same film. Alanis ended up spending 720 hours or 30 days watching the film 292 times. That was between mid-March and mid-December. Some days he watched the movie five times in a row to break the record. He wasn't allowed to nap, use his phone, even go to the bathroom during the film. And this isn't the first time he's in the record books. Alanis broke the same record back in 2019 by watching Avengers Endgame nearly 191 times. <laughs> That's the latest in the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney. You can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Follow me on Twitter, too, if you're there. Friendly Business, it's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.